Well, this morning we have a privilege to have Dr. Rick Morton with us today. Um, Rick and I, um, we go back, and so don't talk to him. He has way too many stories about me. We served on staff together in Memphis, and uh, Rick is a, a, a good friend, and uh, he's uh, just an incredible uh We've had an incredible camaraderie, I think, in our convictions um, in ministry lives, and it's a privilege to have you with us today, Rick. A little bit about him. He, is, uh, he, he was is seminary professor. Um, he, he did that for years. Him and his wife have adopted um, three children from the Ukraine, which you'll hear more about this morning. And Rick currently works for Lifeline Children's Services as, exe- as the executive vice president, I think maybe vice president of engagement. He's really important. And, uh, um, uh, but what, what Rick is and what you need to know most today on Orphan Sunday is that Rick um, is a man who, who God has set apart to advocate for those and speak on behalf of those that no one else is speaking on behalf of, and that's the fatherless. And this man has given, God has given him such an incredible way to articulate, I'm going to set you up here, man, to articulate the love of the Father and how he has cared for us and our responsibility to the orphan. And so, Rick, it is a privilege to have you with us. If you'd come up, I want to pray for you. And after I pray for you, man, teach us. Thank you, my brother. Lord, I'm so grateful for Rick, and thank you for who you've made him to be. And, Lord, thank you for our friendship over mm-hmm. the years. Lord, I pray that as we, as we hear from him today, Lord, um, more importantly, that we would hear from you. Mm-hmm that your word would speak to us today through this man, and that you would help us, Lord, continue to be faithful, faithful people and a faithful body that is obedient to you in all that we do. And so, Lord, be with us today. Be with Rick. Lord, speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Um, I just want to say I love your pastor. I love his family. Um, they, are, they are dear to us. I'm getting choked up. This is crazy. He's going to call me a girl later. It's going to be awful. Um, yeah, you know, so I'm, uh, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I, I have, my assistant is actually from Dayton, Ohio. Um, she was really envious that I was coming, and she wasn't. She tried to come along on the trip and, and tried to pass it off and say she was going to have to come to interpret for me. She said, because Paul talked about that deal with the Corinthians, like when you were speaking in an unknown tongue, you need to have an interpreter. And she's like, dude, they're not going to understand a thing you say. So, um, you know, so we're just going to kind of roll with that and do the best we can. Um, my son, my 14-year-old son, who was our first adopted from Ukraine, um, came home at 18 months old when he was about three years old. Um, my wife was in the post office at the seminary with him and met someone, and they heard him talk, and he talked with like this syrupy, sweet Mississippi accent and sounded just like his mama, Right? <laughs> And they heard him talk, and the lady looked at my wife, and I promise you, this is not a preacher story. This really happened. He looked at her, she looked at my wife and said, is he from southern Ukraine? <laughs> my, son, my son says all the time, he just, he reminds me, it doesn't matter where he was born. He's like, Dad, we're rednecks, right? I was like, yes, son, we're rednecks. It's good. It's okay. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm really, really thrilled to be here with you. Um, one of the things we're doing in Birmingham is in addition to serving with Lifeline Children's Services and, and being a part of that, we're part of a church plant in Birmingham. And so we're planting a church in, in the inner city of Birmingham in a, a really underserved, um, under-gospeled kind of area in Birmingham. And the, like the mission statement of our church is that, that we, we, we exist to make the real G- Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. That's it. That's, that's like the whole mission of what we're there to do. And, and, and it's really tough in a place like Birmingham because, because there are a whole bunch of people that think they know the real Jesus. And they know some stuff about Jesus, and they've kind of they've spent a little bit of time maybe you know hearing about or or, or 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 being around the things of God, and so but but they don't really know Jesus. They don't know the real Jesus. And and you know here we live in a culture where the whole world is slanted against us knowing the real Jesus, right? I mean, you know, like think about like the cultural depictions that we have of Jesus. You know, like that picture that hung on my grandmother's wall and probably yours too, right? You know, Jesus has a 70s haircut, he's blonde, he's blue-eyed, and he looks like he's really frail. That's not Jesus. You know, God's Word tells us that Jesus was the son of a carpenter. He was probably a, you know, kind of a buff, rough, tough kind of looking guy. He was probably, you know, really strong. The scriptures also tell us when, when we read, not through the lens of Hollywood movies that, that make Jesus look like this sort of British sounding aloof guy who didn't really like jive with people. And we read the Bible for what it is. What we see is we see a savior that came who desperately loved people, who wanted to be with people, who connected with people and who lived all of the, all of the emotions and all of the life that we live, we see this really vibrant life that that wanted to be with people. And so this morning I want to start out and I want to point out a text to you, Mark chapter 12, where where we get a glimpse into a little bit of the character and a little bit of the personality of Jesus because there were times when when Jesus was ironic there were times when he was funny there were times that he was when he was witty and there were times when his wit had had like a, a little bit of a razor sharp edge to it, and so we're gonna we're gonna delve into one of those one of those places this morning. And so, um, if you have your Bible, Mark twelve, beginning in verse twenty eight, it says, "And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, I love that. Like, go figure that like the Son of God, the Eternal Word, was like answering the question well, duh." He's going to get them all right. You know, he said, seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe said to him, again, duh, teacher, you're right. Yes, he is. He's Jesus. Check the name tag. Um, He said, teacher, you are right, and truly you have said that he is one, and there's no other beside him, and to love him with all all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole and burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay, let's set the stage for like what's really happening, because this is one of those passages that because we don't live in the first century and we don't understand the context of what was going on in the interplay 
play of this conversation, we can kind of miss it. But this scribe of Israel, what his job was, is, is he was basically like the Xerox copier of the first century. He was, he was writing the text of the Old Testament and writing the scrolls over and over and over and over and over again. And his job was to be precise. His precision was essential because, because if, if he messed up, if he put a dot in the wrong place, if he put a tittle in the wrong place, that's actually a real Hebrew thing. If he put any of that stuff in the wrong place, then he was telling people something that wasn't true about God, and he was telling them something that wasn't true about their history with God, and he was telling them something ultimately that wasn't true about the gospel. And so it was really important that he did that, but, but as Israel developed and over the years and the cycles of obedience and disobedience and all the stuff that, that, the, that the children of Israel went through before the coming of Jesus, their job and kind of their outlook for what they were supposed to do changed. They became not just people who copied the word of God, but they became people who interpreted the word of God for the people. As a matter of fact, what a scribe was is he was like a, he was like a, like a first century lawyer at this point. And so what people went to the, to the scribe for most of the time is they went to him to say, okay, so what does the word of God require of me? What does God want from me? And he actually earned a living and he like earned sustenance for answering those questions for people. But people didn't understand that people did not go to the scribe. People went to the scribe for the same reason that we go to a lawyer today. We don't go to an attorney today to say, how much can I pay? How much can I give away? Most of the time we go to an attorney because we're trying to protect ourselves. We're, we're looking to, to be minimally compliant to something. We're looking to figure out what's the letter of the law so that we can, we can minimally obey and, and get moving. And that's what, in a spiritual sense, Israel was doing with these scribes. They were going to the scribes and they were basically saying, hey, tell me what I have to do to get God off my back. What do I have to give? What do I have to do? What, 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 what action do I have to take? What do I have to give up? What, but, but tell me what I have to do in order to please God, but ultimately to placate God. Give me, give me a sense of like the, the bottom line of the minimum obedience. Okay, right? So that's the context. This scribe comes. He hears him arguing about the resurrection and all this stuff. And so he walks up and he says, Wow, teacher, you're doing a really good job. You're knocking all these softballs out of the park. Let me ask you a question out of my cleverness that's going to completely trip you up, and, and you're, going to, you're going to have to commit heresy. Like, what's the most important commandment of all? And what Jesus is supposed to do is he's supposed to stammer all over himself and say, well, uh, you know, well, there's like the first one, and then there's like the, the other nine, and they're like all really important, and there's not like one more important than the other. And, blah, blah, blah. and that's what he's expecting to happen. And Jesus looks at this guy. And I just have in my mind's eye, okay, I'm, Ryan and I share the fact that we're just a little sarcastic at times, okay? And so I just, I imagine Jesus with a little bit of a sarcastic edge. I mean, like a facepalm moment. Because you have to understand also that this scribe had like a, like a costume, like a rig that he wore that was like tied to his job. And, and so Jesus, Jesus looks at this guy who is wearing... This thing that was called a phylactery, it's like a leather, it's like a, a box with scripture in it that's tied right between his eyes. 
And there are like four, particularly four passages of Scripture, which, which we'll talk about in just a second, that are inside that box. Why does he wear it? He wears it because it's supposed to remind him every single day that he gets up. The first thing he does is he ties that thing around his forehead so that it sits right between his eyes so that he must keep those passages of, of the Word of God in front of him and that they direct everything that he does. Not only that, he's wearing these tassels that are hanging off of his robe that are like these leather things that are wrapped around his arms that are like, you know, five, six feet long. And so like these big, heavy leather tassels, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine eating spaghetti with like five foot? Yeah, it's like bothersome, right? But it's supposed to be because the deal is it's supposed to be every time he goes to write something, every time he goes to do something, every time he goes to move, that these leather things are like slapping him all over the place. And what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to be slapping him and reminding him about who God is and about what he's done and about how he's supposed to live according to that. And so, he's, you know, so he comes and asks this clever question, trying to, to trip Jesus up. And what does Jesus say? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like this, that you shall love, the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let's talk about the verse, one of the verses that, that our friend has tied between his eyes. It goes something like this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Leather straps five feet long hanging off of his wrist. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, a phylactery that was tied between his eyes. This very passage says that, buddy, the reason that, you're ha that you have these tassels hanging off of your robe and the reason that you have this thing stuck between your eyes is because it's supposed to remind you every waking moment of every day that God is it, that he is ultimate, that there is nothing beyond him, that you're supposed to invest that in your children and that your whole life is supposed to be wrapped up in that. And then you go down to verse 10 in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care, the, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of slavery. For it is the Lord your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of peoples around you. The Lord your God is in your midst, a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Here is the reality of what the problem was that this scribe had. He had forgotten why God had rescued him and the people of Israel and the purpose that he had given them. And that they had been tasked with a purpose, that, that they had been given the job of loving God above all else, that they had been called out from among all of the other nations to devote themselves to God and then to devote themselves to the other nations. And here's this, this sort of silly scribe that's standing in Jesus' face playing games with him about, about you know, trying to trip him up in the, in the intricacies of the word of God. And Jesus is saying, lift your eyes, man. 
your job, what you've been created for, what God has cut you out for, for, for what he has, has, has brought your people out of Egypt and out of slavery, for what he continues to gather them together for, it's to extol who God is to the far reaches of the earth and to bring the peoples of the world to know that our God is the God. Now, before I get too quick in condemning the scribe, I've got to tell you something. I was that guy. Seminary professor teaching at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary had more degrees than a thermometer. Still have them. Just understand they're worth a little more now or lack thereof. Paper all over the wall that says I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about and that I've studied theology and that I'm in a place where I can help other people to prepare for ministry. And one day my wife came home and we're sitting over dinner and we're having our nice dinner together. And she looked at me and she said, honey, I just need for you to know that I think the Lord has, has it in his plan for us to adopt. I didn't even put my fork down. Like between bites, I was like, uh-uh. I'm thinking in my mind, I've seen Dateline. I know how this can work. This is, this is tough and it's hard and it's messy and I didn't ever think about that and I didn't sign up for that deal and, and, and that's, that's just, you know, what and like all of these thoughts... How much could that cost? What would that, what would that take? What, you know, what if, we, what if we adopt a child and they don't, and they don't love us back? What, what about if, you know, like, can I love a child that we adopt as much as a, can I love that child as much as a child that, that you know, that we would, we would bear the conventional way? All of that sort of stuff. And I was that guy that was going, okay, God, what's minimum obedience here? I've been a youth pastor for a long time. I've, I've lived and helped raise a whole bunch of other people's kids. And, and, and we, we've, but fundamentally, God was calling us to something. Now, I want, I want you to know my wife didn't play fair. Some of you ladies need to pay attention to this next part because you're going you're gonna to get something. This is the gold nugget for you today. She didn't play fair because if she played fair according to the rules that I expected that she would play by, she would like start leaving me scripture verses in lipstick on the mirror, you know, leaving open Bibles around the house, turned to strategic verses, you know, that, that sort of stuff, leaving post-it notes with loving, you know, like pictures of children and stuff like that on them. That's, that's how she would have played. She didn't. She took the example of the persistent widow and she just prayed like crazy. And she said, Lord, I know, that, I know that you've placed this on my heart, and I know that that, that big dummy that I'm married to, that you can put it on his heart too. you just got to work a little harder because his skull's a little thicker. And so she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed. And I'm telling you, I can only explain it to you. It was like being pursued by the hounds of heaven. Spurgeon talks about this idea of being pursued by the hounds of heaven. This, I, I mean, it was, like, it was like everywhere I turned, people were talking about orphans, and people were talking about adoption, and, and there, there was stuff. And, and like finally, like it got so crazy that there was a point where I just said, Okay, Lord, I, I just got to know this is you. And the way I'm going to know it's you is, 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 is that, that orphan care and that, that caring for, for children who don't have a voice and can't care for themselves, that it's not just a good thing to do, but it's a gospel thing to do. 
Like, what does this have to do with making disciples? What does this have to do with the Great Commission? What does this have to do about the, like the prime directive that we've been given as the church? Because I get, you know, like feeding and clothing and giving families and all that sort of stuff, and that's all awesome. But God, what does this have to do with the gospel? And so I went into the scriptures and just started studying like mad. And, and what happened is the Lord met me in the midst of that. And when I was looking for it, it was there. And what began to just jump out of the pages of Scripture as I looked over the whole narrative of redemptive history is that over and over and over and over and over again, God has called his people to care for those who don't have a voice, to care for widows and to care for orphans and to care for aliens, to, to extend ourselves to them, to take those who have no rights and to take those who have no voice and to care for them as a picture of the gospel. And, and so over and over and over, what you see through, throughout all of Scripture is that, 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 that we, maybe in the church, have gotten to a place where we've kind of become like the scribe, where we've sort of disconnected this seeking of justice and, and this, this righting of the, of the wrongs and, and, the, and the, the, the fixing of injustice and how that relates to our proclamation of the gospel into our culture. And, and, and so, you know, go back and look at passages. I'm going to point out one to you just kind of as an anchor place to go to, to show you how this, how this kind of flows throughout the, the, the history and the rhythm of Israel even before we get to the cross. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Now that I have your attention, Right? It's like people are going, did he, did he really? It's the Bible. I didn't, I didn't write it. <laughs> and be no longer stubborn. And that's actually an important point. We're going, to get, we're going to come back to it. For the Lord your Lord, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do not miss that. For you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by, by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God who has done for you all these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down into Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Here's, what, here's essentially what's, what's being said to the people of God at this point. He's saying, don't make some sort of outward manifestation of, of your allegiance to God. This is not about you looking like on the outside somebody who who follows God. This is about you doing surgery on the inside. This is about letting the Spirit of God work in your life and change you and make you over and make you new. He's talking about this, this idea of you know not circumcision on the outside. I don't care what tribe you look like you're from. What I want you to do is I want you to be of the, of the tribe of God. Let God work over and change you. Ultimately, we know that's what the gospel is. That the, that the whole story of redemptive history is, is that we are broken and we are messed up and we're sinful and we have absolutely no ability to rescue ourselves. And that Jesus stepped out of heaven and he lived in such a way to demonstrate that brokenness because he lived perfectly and then he died. And then he rose again and he showed his power over everything that we know and over all of creation and that, in, in, that, that Israel was being called out 
that as they were redeemed out of slavery, as they were brought out of slavery, just like we've been brought out of the slavery of sin when we've, when we've come into to life in Christ, when they were brought out of slavery, he's saying, now because you have been delivered that way, you need to take the people who are the most enslaved, who are the most voiceless, the people that are the most marginalized in the world, and you need to redeem them physically. You need to do things to help them because every time you do that, it's an object lesson of the gospel. Because you see, there's a, there's a reality that we see that over and over and over, as, as Israel lived out its obedience and disobedience, and right, we know there's that cycle that kind of goes on throughout all the Old Testament where Israel's in a place where they're following God and they're living obediently, and then they're in places where they're not following God and they're not living obediently. Well, every time, if you, when you go back and you look at the places where, where God was dealing with the people in their disobedience, there is a consistent theme that you see throughout the Old Testament. One of the charges that's always brought against Israel is that you have victimized widows, you have victimized orphans, you have turned your back on the sojourner, you have failed to care for those who do not have a voice and do not have rights in your society. You see that triad, kind of that triad of concern, widows, orphans, sojourners. What's, the, what's the, the, the common denominator of widows, orphans, and sojourners? They're people who don't have rights in society. They don't have a voice that allows them to, to be able to do anything to help themselves. And all of them are in the place that they're in as a result of something that, that's a direct result of sin and the fall. Why do children become orphans? Children become orphans because parents sometimes don't care and they leave or parents die. That's a result of the fall. Why do women become widows? widows women become widows or, or men become widowers because husbands and wives die. We weren't created to start that way. That's the result of sin. How do you become an alien or a sojourner or what the Bible? You end up on the wrong side of a line at where, where politically we've said this is a country or this is a place and you have rights if you belong here and you don't have rights if you don't belong here. And, and, and we, we ultimately have divided stuff up and called it our, called it our own and that's ultimately a, a, a consequence of, of sin. It's a consequence of the fall. And so what we get to do as the people of God, as we get the opportunity to step into those particular kinds of suffering, and when we do, we're able to put the gospel on display for the world. Go to, run over to Matthew chapter 25 real quick. I'm, you, you may not even have time to turn there, but I'm just going to read this passage for you. Now, this is Jesus talking. At this point, you may have perfectly well completely disregarded everything that I've said and said, well, all that happened before the cross. All that happened before Jesus. How do we know, how do we know that Jesus would, would really have us to do this kind of ministry? Well, check this out. Beginning in verse 31, it says, when the, man, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Remember, we said that, that part of the, the purpose of Israel was that they were to, to show the, who God is and what he's like to all the nations, right? And so this is kind of the end of that curve. 
And it says, and he will separate people one from another as a, she- a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and, his, and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And he said, the king will answer them and say, truly I say to you, as, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And if we go on and read the, the, the latter part of this chapter, Jesus says the opposite about the goats. He says, you saw me hungry and you saw me naked and you saw me in prison and you saw me sick and you saw me all of these ways and yet you didn't do anything for me. And they say, Jesus, we never saw you in any of those conditions. And he said, when you saw the least of these in that condition and you did nothing, you did nothing unto me. Now let's go back and pull our theology out for just a second and figure out what that means and what it doesn't mean. We know that Jesus is not telling the people that he's listening to, nor is he telling us that we have to go out and do those good works in order to merit his favor, in order to get enough notches in our belt to be saved to be rescued. That's not what this is about. What Jesus is talking about is he's talking to people that are in the kingdom, people that are in Christ, who have experienced the redemption and and the restoration that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And he's saying that when you are in Christ, you're going to do these kinds of things. Okay, here's a test for you. If you squeeze a grape, what do you get? Grape juice, right? If you squeeze a Christian, what you should get are good works. Good works done unto the least of these. Good works that are, that, are, that are pointed to the people who cannot defend themselves, who cannot help themselves like orphans and widows and sojourners. I kind of explain it like this. I have three kids. Ryan told you they're all adopted from Ukraine. Two of them are, are teenage boys, 14 and 15 years old, and we, we kind of are thinking right now that both of them have a tapeworm. <laughs> I, I promise, again, not a preacher story. This is real. Like about three weeks ago, my 15-year-old son, I walked around the corner in our kitchen, and I observed him with a stick of butter. He was eating butter. He was not eating butter on bread, on crackers, on his shoe, anything else. He was just eating butter. Pray for me. (laughs) One of my favorite places to go with my two boys is Sam's, right? Do you guys know Sam's here? Do you have Sam's in this part of the country? Okay. Saturday at Sam's is is like hallelujah day for us. I'm like, I just take them and I say, guys, I'm going to go do some shopping and stuff. You guys just keep turning laps and going by like the little stands. And whenever you're full, we'll go home. (laughs) I've even told them it's probably not bad if you want to go by the clothing section and try something on. And then go by and get, get some more food and maybe they won't remember who you are. You know, no, but, but truly, here's the deal. When we go to Sam's and, and they have all these carts and things set out all over the food section, right? And they've got all these little bitty cups of goodness that are out there with things that they want you to try. The, their goal is not for you to make lunch out of that. 
Their goal is that you would get a little bit of a taste on your lips and then you would go like buy the 50 pound bag that's gonna go freezer burnt in your freezer. <laughs> Unless you have a 14 and 15 year old son and then it will, won't be there tomorrow. <laughs> but don't miss the point. The point is that Sam's gives you this little bit of a taste because they want you to buy the whole big thing. They want you to get the whole big experience. Well, here's the thing that we're doing in the church when we care for orphans. When we care for orphans, we're putting a taste on the lips of the world, of the gospel, and of the coming kingdom of Jesus. And, and we're testifying to the fact that we're citizens in a kingdom that's, that's different and other and better than anything else we have citizenship in. And that because we are citizens of that kingdom and because we're anticipating a day when our king is going to make all things new, when our king is going to, to bring a new heaven and a new earth to bear, when he is going to return and he is going to eradicate and completely fix all of the results of sin, that we're pointing to a day when that's going to be the reality that we're going to live in, but until then. We can do these little bitty acts of, of reconciliation and these little bitty acts of kindness and these little bitty acts of goodness that put a little bit of a taste of the kingdom of God on people's lips. And then when we get their attention, we're able to say to them, there is something that is so much bigger and so much better. And so what we do when we care for orphans is we put a word picture out into the world of who Jesus is and what he's done and how he came to do it, and we get, we get to show that to the world. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you that we've struggled in the modern church to be able to do that well as it, as it, as it relates to orphans. That in America in particular, we've struggled with it because, because we've, we've, you know, somehow that's become like the government's business to do or that's somebody else's business to do or that's a foundation's business to do. But what we see from the very word of God is that's the church's business to do. Because we're to be out there and to be active and we're to be doing things and, and, and we're, we're, to be, we're to be working in places for orphans and for those that don't have a voice and for those that can't care for themselves to testify to the greater reality of the kingdom. If you want to like run one verse in the Bible kind of up the flagpole and say this is the verse that really talks about what we do in orphan care, it's James chapter 1, verse 27. It goes like this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. By visit, James doesn't mean go by and carry him a donut. He doesn't mean go by and see him for a minute. What he, the word that he uses for visit is the word pastor. It's the word shepherd. If you were living in, in dire crisis and, and one of your pastors or one of the elders here or somebody that's, that's in, kind of in spiritual responsibility for this body, if they came by and just tossed a donut at you and left, you'd be mad, right? What you want is you want to be shepherded. You want to be loved on. You want the body to come around you. you want, that's, that's what orphans need from us. They need, to be, they need to be taught and told the things that a family would teach and tell them. They need to experience the, the security that a family would bring when they don't have a family. They need all of that stuff, and they need us to do that for them and to stand in the gap for them in meaningful ways so that they can become the productive people and ultimately that they can become people who follow Jesus and make disciples. 
Now, when you look at James 1.27, one of the errors that we tend to make in the church is we look at a verse like this and we go, hey, it says, pure religion undefiled before God is this, Father, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And we go, that is awesome for those people that are called to that. Well, read the end of the verse. That whole keep oneself unstained from the world business. I promise you, if Ryan were to get up here next Sunday in his sermon, kind of the point, the thesis of his sermon was, you know, that, that whole keeping yourself unstained from the world thing as a believer, there's only, there are only a few of you that are called to that. The rest of you can just go live any way you want to. You don't, you don't have to try to look like Jesus. You don't have to try to strive to be like Jesus. You don't have to, you don't have to, to, to pray to be conformed to the image of Christ. You don't have to work desperately in your own sanctification. You don't have to do any of that because there's only like 2% of the church that are actually called to be holy. The rest of you guys just go out and live any way you want to. You'd run him out on a rail. You'd think that he's, he's lost his mind. You'd think he's become a heretic. But yet, we're, con, we're content to look at a verse like this and to say, well, you know, they're all, it's like there's just a few people in the church that are called out to do orphan care. They're not. James is telling us it's all of our responsibility. Now, the deal is that doesn't mean you have to, like, be an adoptive parent or be a foster parent. That's one way. But, but being an adoptive parent or being a foster parent, we, we joked last night with some of the folks that are here, and, and they understood. That's like the Green Berets of this deal, right? We're the people that don't have any better sense than to put a, like a knife between our teeth and jump out of the helicopter and just figure it out on the way down, right? But that's not everybody in the Army. We know that there, you know, that there are rangers and airborne and people that, that do those kinds of things, but there are also all kinds of other people that are doing all kinds of other things in order to make the Army function well. Same thing with the body of Christ. So what might that look like, church? What it might look like is, is for you to give a little piece of your life in order to, to, to help to, to boost an orphan up, in order to give them security, in order to give them stability. It might mean that you, you might not step into foster care to be one of the people who, who cares for one of the 400,000 kids in America that are in foster care, but what you might step up to do is to be qualified to be able to babysit one of those kids. Because the, the truth and the reality of a foster parent is that, that because of the regulations of the state and the stuff that we live under, they can't just leave the, their, their, the children that they have in care with just anybody. They have to be background checked and they have to be prepared. It might mean that, that you're out here and you have, have great ability in English or math or something like that. It's some, some subject that, that you could take a child who's been bounced in and out of foster care or a child who's, who's grown up in an orphanage where they've had very poor schooling and you might be able to tutor them in a subject and, and to help them. It might mean that you, you would be willing to, to, to contribute to a fund within this church to be able to help families to be able to adopt. It might mean that you're willing to, to sponsor a child somewhere halfway around the world and that you would give 20 or 30 or 40 dollars a month to making sure that that child has food and clothing and shelter and discipleship and that, you're, that what you're doing in that is you're, you're basically stopping the orphan crisis from happening and you're turning it off at the spigot. There are all manner of ways that people can get involved. I want to tell you a story real quick just as we kind of wind up of one of the most impactful like orphan care stories that I know of. There was a movie a few years ago that was done, a documentary about the foster care system in America, and it's called Faultless, and it's about how the church has engaged the, the crisis in foster care. 
And there's this guy on the movie that like made an incredible impression on me. He's like in his mid-70s. I want to say his name is Joe, but that may not be right. But, but he's like in his mid-70s or so. And when they interviewed him, he said something like this. He said, hi, my name is Joe and I, 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 I do foster care. But then he goes on to say, he said, I, I do foster care, but, but I'm, a, I'm a widower. My, my wife passed away a few years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm by myself. I'm not in a position where, where I can invite a child into my home. I can't, I can't, I can't have a child. I'm, I'm kind of past that point in life. He says, but I'm retired and I've got a lawnmower. And so what I do is I go around and I cut the yards of foster families in our church. Because those foster families, they've opened their home to a child that, that, that has some needs and that they have some, they have some struggles. And so what I do is I cut their yard and I figure what I'm doing is I can give them an hour or two where they can rest or, or where they can pour into that child or where they can make a doctor's appointment and a visit or something like that. He said, because, because I'm, I'm a guy who has time and I'm a guy who has a lawnmower. Praise the Lord, Joe gets it. And, and the fact of the matter is that, that what we're not all called out to do is to do the same thing, but we are all called out to do something. And so there are a plethora of ways that you can become involved through the body of Christ, through this church, in order to help kids and in order to put the gospel on display. I would encourage you, please, 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 as a body, continue to pray for what God is up to. We're seeing this break out, not just in America, but all over the world. You know, I was just in, in Africa about a year ago, and one of the things that's happened in Kenya is that in Kenya, where they've never had a way for, for a child to be adopted in the country within Kenya because they've always done kinship care, and, and, and now the AIDS crisis has just changed that game completely. The, the, the Kenyan government has now been pressured and put into a, in, into a position where they have to write adoption laws for Kenyan people to adopt Kenyan children because the church is rising up and the church is saying, we're going to care for those kids. And we don't care if they're our family or not. We don't care what the tradition of our country is. We don't care what the, what, what the taboos of our, of, our, of our country are. We're going to step out and we're going to bring those kids into our home and we're going to make them legitimate parts of our family and we're going to do that because of what Christ has done for us. And so literally the nation of Kenya has, has such an, a profound witness that's going on before them and we're seeing it happen in Southeast Asia and we're seeing it happen in South America and we're seeing it happen in North America. We're seeing it happen all over the place. And so I would just, I would urge you to pray that the Spirit of God would continue to move and the believers would yield themselves and I would encourage you to ask one simple question. Lord, what is it that you want me to do? God, how is it that you want to take what you have given me in time, in talent, in treasure to step forward to care for a child who has none of that? And then that you would step forward in, forward in obedience and do it. I believe something pretty deeply. I think anytime we get together in a setting like this and we hear the word of God proclaimed, I believe we need to respond. I believe part of, part of what, what wells up within us is the need to say we've heard truth. We've, we've, seen, we've seen God declare himself through his word. We've, we've seen God call us to something in obedience. And so, so maybe, maybe you're out there and you're going, 
I need, I need to repent. Maybe you're like I was, and you're going, I'm indifferent, and I, you know, and, and I just don't want to see it, and I don't want to hear it, and I don't want to think about it, and I've just kind of put it to the side, and I've, I've not really dwelled on the reality of, of the 153 million orphans that live around the world, and I've just not let that be real. And Lord, I want to repent of that, and Lord, I want to ask you just to wash over me and teach me something. Maybe you're out there and, and, and you're going, I need to do something. I've got a skill or I've got a talent or I've got an ability or I have something and, and, and I've yielded it to, 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 to the Lord in some ways, but, but I've never thought about how to use that to, to care for the fatherless. And God, I, wanna, I want you to show me how it is that, that I could use what you've given me in order to give to them. I think this needs to be a place of prayer this morning where we pray and, and we get on our faces before God and we say, God, thank you. Thank you for not letting us continue to be unaware. And Lord, Lord, here I am. Do with me what you want to do with me. Maybe the Lord solidified some decision or some commitment in your life today and you want to grab Ryan or you want to grab one of the other pastors and you want to talk about that and, and want to talk about practical steps of what that would look like. I, I don't know what that's going to look like this morning, but I want us to close by opening this altar. For this to be a place of, of confession, for this to be a place of prayer, for this to be a place of action, for this to be a place of response. And so we're going to sing, and that's going to happen, and I'm going to pray for us, and, and, then, and then we're going to do that. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that, um, that Lord, when we were orphaned, when, God, because of, because of our sin, we were separated from you. And, God, we could not fix that. We could not, we could not do enough in order to, to be holy or to please you. God, when, when we were those children that, Lord, Jesus, you stepped out of heaven and you came after us. Jesus, you pursued us. And, Lord, we claim the promise. And, God, we thank you. In the book of Ephesians, you led Paul to remind us that because of the work of Jesus and what he's done, that we have been adopted into your family and that we get to call you daddy. And that, God, we're not children without a father, but, God, we're, we're children with a heavenly father who have an inheritance and have a worth and have a name and have, have God, all that comes with being your child. Father, I want to pray and ask you to to work in your body, God, to work in your church, God, to show us what you would have us to do in order to live obediently according to the great call that you've placed on our lives because of the gospel. God, that you would show us children that hurt, that have no voice to be able to express the hurt. God, that you would, that you would show us children who, who, are, who are failing and can't make a way. And God, you would show us how to help to make a way for them. That God, you would give us the courage to step into the messy and that God, you would, you would be an agent of cleaning up the mess. And God, I want to pray for everyone that's within the sound of my voice this morning. And Lord, pray that you would just show us what it is that you would have each of us to do in response to you. And so, Lord, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen.